This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 2nd, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, John Travis joins us to talk about post-operative cognitive decline. Does undergoing surgery sap brain power? And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from the Daily News site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our Daily News site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on the taste of water. I was actually really surprised by a lot of the as- a lot of aspects of the study, but the biggest one is that I never thought about how water doesn't fit into this five basic taste types. Do you know what the five tastes are, Sarah? I wrote it down, <laughs> but you, you go ahead. Tell me off the top of your head. Salty, sour, sweet, bitter, and umami. Umami. Which I don't think they taught us in grade school, right? No, I never learned about umami, but umami is like the savory taste, so apparently it's got like a kind of a beef Meaty, something like that. Anyway, um, yeah, those were thought to be the only five. And now maybe we have one more. Yeah, and they call it a sixth sense in the headline, and I feel like we have a lot of sixth sense. (laughs) We do have a lot of sixth sense headlines. (laughs) Thinking about it now, I would have guessed that we have specific water receptors because it's so important that we drink water. Insects and amphibians have water-sensing nerve cells, and there's been some preliminary research that there are similar cells in mammals. And in fact, and in fact, a few recent brain scan studies have also suggested that there's a region of the human cortex that responds specifically to water. So it seems like we've got a sense for water, but scientists didn't exactly know how it worked and where it was. And in this case, the researchers tried to narrow it down to where on the tongue and maybe if taste receptors were involved specifically in sensing water, right? Right. And they what they did was they used genetic knockout mice. And so they knocked out different genes for different what are called taste receptor cells or TRCs. And these are kind of what gives our taste buds the taste. And what they found is that when they knocked out an acid-sensing TRC, the mice, uh, when given the choice between water and a clear, tasteless, synthetic silicon oil couldn't really tell the difference, which suggests they had lost their ability to perceive water, at least in their mouths. After they knocked out this particular taste receptor and found that the taste testing for water was not working on the mice, they then turned to optogenetics to try to pin down even more specifically what was going on. Right, so they um, they bred mice to express light-sensitive proteins on their acid-sensing 
TRCs, which make the cells fire in response to light from a laser. And then there's actually a video of this, which mm-hmm. is kind of crazy. They train the mice to drink from water from a spout, but then the team replaced the water with an optic fiber that shone blue light on their tongues. And the mice like tried to drink this blue light like they were licking up water. In fact, um, some of the thirsty mice actually licked the light spout as many as 2,000 times every 10 minutes. You know, it is pretty startling to see, you know, basically a video saying this mouse is drinking light. But does this actually narrow it down all the way and be able and tell us this is how mammals or maybe just mice taste water? It seems to be. I mean, one thing it doesn't tell us is that the scientists sort of have expected that whatever was involved with taste would not only allow us to taste water, but actually initiate us to start drinking water and actually help us stop, tell us when to stop drinking water. But these mice just kept on drinking, drinking, drinking the blue light, which suggests that whatever mechanism was involved wasn't necessarily an on-off switch. Mm -hmm. And so there's probably other parts of the pathway that are still yet, that are still undiscovered. Right. So does does this explain why it might be associated with acid? I mean, you know, water has a pretty neutral pH. But saliva actually has a low pH. And so when water goes into your mouth, it will wash out this acidic saliva, making your mouth more neutral. And maybe that's what's activating these water receptors. Now we have a story on mummy DNA. A lot of modern techniques have been applied to Egyptian mummies. We're talking isotopic analysis, x-rays, MRIs. But DNA has been kind of an elusive holdout. Why is that, Dave? Well, people thought that there was no DNA left in mummies, A, because of the hot desert climate that these uh, mummies were interred in, thought to break down DNA, but also, you know, you've got mummification. There's a lot of pretty nasty chemicals probably being used in that um, that were thought to have destroyed any genetic material that would have been left. Okay, but we're going to talk about how you actually do get DNA out of a mummy. The idea in the study was to look for the ancient stuff, the actual DNA, and not amplify fragments using PCR, which can lead to contamination issues. So what mummies did they look at here and how did they get the DNA out? Well, they only looked at pieces of mummies. They looked at mummy heads. There's actually 151 mummy heads, or they looked at 151 mummy heads that are uh, from an ancient settlement called Abu Sir al-Malak, which is about 100 kilometers south of Cairo along the Nile. Now, these were heads stored in a museum. And lo and behold, even though the the researchers didn't find any DNA left uh, on the whatever skin or remnants of skin was left, they actually did find a lot of DNA in the bones. And most of that was mitochondrial DNA? Yeah, most of that's mitochondrial DNA. This is the DNA that is in the sort of the power plants of the cell. There's also a lot more copies of it, which makes it easier to find, but it only comes from the mom. And there's not nearly as much mitochondrial DNA in terms of the length of the sequence as there is what in what's called nuclear DNA, which is the DNA most of us think about. Well, beyond these limitations, the researchers were able to access like a wide time frame looking across a long lineage of mummies. What could they tell about ancient Egypt from these samples? Yeah, they looked at, you know, 1,300 years from a few hundred years BCE to a few hundred years CE. And what they found, which was really interesting, is first of all, they were able to recover a lot of this DNA and sequence it. But they found that the basic genetics of these people didn't really change over time, which is really surprising because at various points, Egypt was conquered by the Assyrians, uh, by the Persians, by the Greeks, and by the Romans. And so you would expect this would really alter the DNA 
of the people that live there. But that's not what the researchers saw. In fact, they saw a pretty continuous genetic signature over time. Until? Until the Egyptians uh, alive today actually have a lot of African DNA in their genome. Some 15 to 20% of modern Egyptians' mitochondrial DNA reflects a a sub-Saharan ancestry, which people think happened because after this time period when people were looking at the mummies is when we had uh, more uh, increased trade along the Nile, including the slave trade, which seems to have really started to alter the Egyptian genome. This is really just the beginning of what we're going to learn from mummy DNA, right? We have a lot more mummies. We have a lot more mummies. And again, we're just dealing with mitochondrial DNA here, um, which, as we said, is only a small part of the story. And we're also only dealing with one particular location in Egypt. Egypt was a pretty big place. And so we're going to have to want to look at a lot more of Egypt. Luckily, there are literally thousands of mummies that we can potentially get DNA from now. Last up, we have a story on ancient sled dogs. This is your story, Dave, so I can just kind of sit back here. Um, (laughs) And so can I. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking dog domestication 9,000 years ago, but that's not so old. What's special about these pups? Yeah, I mean, we don't know exactly when dogs were domesticated or even where, but the thinking is that it happened at least 15,000 years ago. So we're a few thousand years beyond that initial domestication. But what's significant about this study is it's giving us our first time point for when dogs were actually bred to do something particular. Sled dogs. Sled dogs. And in this case, dogs being bred as sled dogs. Sled dogs means snow. Where on earth were they using sled dogs at this point? Well, this is an island known as Zakhov Island, which is 500 kilometers north of the Russian mainland, all out in the middle of nowhere in the East Siberian Sea. Although it didn't used to be in the middle of nowhere, it actually used to be attached to the Russian mainland before glaciers melted and the seas rose. But even then, it was a pretty remote and somewhat inhospitable place. It was pretty cold year-round. The inhabitants, the Zakovians, hunted polar bear without firearms. They're actually the only people in history that we know of that hunted polar bears in large numbers, maybe even a third of their diet without firearms, just with spears, which is pretty remarkable. But they also hunted reindeer and they needed a way from, to get from place to place because these were migrating herds of reindeer. You needed to be able to track these reindeer, get them, kill them, bring the meat back to the camp. You needed a mode of transportation. This evidence that we're going to talk about, is it bones? Is it artifacts? What do we have? We have kind of all of that. Uh, you know, before this study, scientists had found remains of dogs, 9,000-year-old uh, dogs, and remains of wooden sleds on the island. And so they thought that, well, maybe these people were breeding dogs as sled dogs, but they couldn't really seal the deal. And they, they claimed to have done that or actually gotten very close to that in this new study one of the things they did was they looked at a, the bones of some of these dogs and they compared them to modern dogs and wolves and sort of said, yeah, these are definitely dogs, although one may have been a wolf-dog hybrid. But the more significant thing they did was they took a lot of these bones and they extrapolated how big these dogs would have been. And they found that 10 of them uh, weighed between 16 and 25 kilograms and may have resembled Siberian Huskies. And the other one, which is maybe the wolf-dog hybrid, was a bit bigger, maybe weighed about 29 kilograms and may have been similar to an Alaskan Malamute. Now, the, what's really interesting about the ones that weigh between 16 and 25 kilograms is that that's kind of pretty close to an ideal weight for a sled dog. When you want a sled dog, you want an animal that's big enough to pull a sled, obviously, but not so big because when got, when dogs get too big, they overheat very quickly. But there's a range here. They're not all exactly the same size. Is that expected? 
Well, there is a range there. And so the, what critics are saying is, yeah, this does seem like they were choosing dogs of fairly specific sizes, but we still got a bit of a range here. And that might mean this wasn't a super controlled breeding program uh, where they said, hey, we've got a sled dog now. Let's just keep on making this sled dog. But maybe more, there was more randomness where you had a bunch of different sizes of dogs breeding together. Maybe even some wolves were mixing in there and breeding together because you had some wolves in this region at the time. But even if that was happening, what the bones seem to indicate is that people were selecting the offspring of those matings for a very specific size and weight, something that could have pulled a sled. You do mention there's a connection here with the climate at the time. Why might that have influenced when dogs were being bred for a job? Well, when we first think dogs came around, which is, again, about 15,000 or more years ago, this is actually a really interesting period in Earth's history because you have the Earth warming, you have large, very large species like mammoths starting to disappear, and you had smaller species like reindeer proliferating, migrating. And so if you've got a dog around and you're hunting mammoth, um, some people say the dogs help us hunt mammoths, but a lot of experts don't think that that was actually the case. So a lot of people say, well, the dog wouldn't have really been that useful at the time. But if you start to have the smaller game where dogs can help you hunt it, track it, chase it down, even maybe even kill it for you, or you could strap these dogs to a sled and chase these smaller game around, all of a sudden now you've got a big use for a dog. And that may be, and so with this study not only just sort of sheds light on when some of the earliest breeding may have started, but also why we would have domesticated dogs in the first place. All right, now I have to ask the cat question. <laughs> when did we start breeding cats on purpose? Have we started breeding cats? <laughs> yeah, no uh, no early evidence for uh, cat breeding that I'm aware of, but I will let you know as soon as I find that. <laughs> okay, Dave. What else is on the site this week? Well, Sarah, speaking of drinking water, we've got a story about whether aardvarks really drink water. There's a myth that they don't, and okay. scientists claim to have busted that myth. Also, a story about programming robots to be more curious. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about whether pigs are involved in Congo's recent Ebola outbreak, a new outbreak of Ebola over there. Also, a story about whether scientists should keep the location of rare and endangered species hidden in order to protect them from poachers. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. We're still getting free transcripts this week from Scribby.com. Please let us know if you find them useful. So a special thanks to Scribby.com. Audio transcription perfected. 75 cents a minute at 99% accuracy. The best deal on the internet for audio transcription. I've heard of baby brain and I've heard of chemo brain, but I've never heard of surgery brain until this feature story by Mitch Leslie. Managing news editor John Travis is here to talk about the evidence for a loss of brain power after undergoing surgery and what can be done about it. Welcome, John. Good afternoon. So can we start with why it's a good time to talk about this topic? The uh, American Society of Anesthesiologists last year decided to launch an initiative on brain health because of increasing concerns that surgery may be causing a cognitive decline, at least in certain cases. Another reason is that there was a recent study that sparked our interest looking at the possible mechanisms of how surgery might hurt our cognition. And that was really what got 
myself and Mitch Leslie interested in the topic. It was a small study looking at mice and immune cells called microglia. But when Mitch probed the topic, he realized uh, there was quite a debate about whether surgery actually did rob us of cognitive powers. And there's a lot of kind of key points in the history of this research where people just started to come to the realization that maybe surgery had some side effects that we hadn't really thought of before. Can you kind of walk us through those? Sure. You have to think back to when general anesthesia came around. At that time, surviving surgery was Russian roulette. Mm -hmm. It it was very, uh, very dicey. So when anesthetics came around, people were just happy to make it through an operation. But after a while, um, as surgical techniques got better, people started to worry about how the survivors were doing, what the downstream health effects were. And there was some hint that maybe surgery could cause cognitive problems. There was a 1955 paper in The Lancet that may have kick-started the whole idea. It looked at six or eight patients and talked about some of the cognitive difficulties they had. Then probably about two decades ago, there was an influential paper looking at people who had heart bypass surgery, and they were put on a machine known as the pump to help circulate their blood. And the study suggested that a high percentage of them had some cognitive difficulty after the surgery, I think maybe 50%. And uh, there was even a term called pump head that uh, referred to these uh, cognitive problems. So that kind of, I think, got the field or at least some scientists interested in the phenomenon. What's interesting about the pump head phenomenon, though, is surgeons went to a pumpless procedure, and yet cognitive difficulties still afflicted a lot of their patients. So it was clear that something more than the pump was going on. Let's just get into the vocabulary of what we're saying here. We've talked about pump head, surgery (laughs) brain, all these things. What has been narrowed down to post-surgery difficulties? There is often uh, what is called a delirium immediately after the surgery in the hours or initial days or two. And that's pretty common and it dissipates pretty quickly, but it can be very severe. Uh, hallucinations, agitation. That is something we still don't understand, but because it's temporary, it hasn't been as big of a concern. What Mitch's feature focuses on is what is known as POCD, postoperative cognitive dysfunction. And that's the idea that in the weeks and months and maybe years after a surgery, a person's mental faculties aren't as sharp. A lot of people have have this idea that a friend went in for surgery and they've never been quite the same. Mm-hmm. That's a very pervasive comment. That is kind of what we're trying to understand. Does that exist and what might cause it? There's still a fight about whether it even exists. Though. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where a bunch of studies have come out with some pretty conflicting results. The two that struck me were a twin study. Uh, there's another heart study where they compared opening up the chest versus uh, angioplasty, which is making a very small opening. And then what did they find there? There isn't the opposite of what you'd expect. It is. It is very confusing. The twin study, I think, had about 8,000 twins, and they did a complicated analysis of any twin who had had surgery versus 
other twins who didn't, and they found a, a small suggestion that there was a cognitive effect. But when they compared sets of twins where one had surgery and the other one didn't, the one who had surgery scored better slightly. So it was somewhat contradictory, and that is what led one pair of researchers to call the idea of postoperative cognitive troubles a fallacy. But other people are pretty convinced um, that it does exist. The second study that you mentioned was trying to look at one of the causes or potential causes, which a lot of people have blamed anesthesia. So that study looked at open heart surgery, uh, which involved a general anesthetic, and compared it to angioplasty, which, as you mentioned, is less invasive and involves a local anesthetic. Yet, surprisingly, the people who had the angioplasty did worse on cognitive tests. And that's hard to explain. Let's not even talk about the people who do better after they've had surgery. That's a very bizarre part that we couldn't leave out of the story where people who have a few surgeries, usually it's usually bariatric surgery for obesity, their mental faculties get sharper. And that's somewhat explainable because obesity does have larger effects on the body and the mind. And so the thought is if you correct that, you, you help the brain. But it does confuse the issue of the larger other types of surgery where you know, we do think there, are, there can be problems. Okay, so I'm just going to throw everything else that can make this confusing out there right right now. So we could talk about the influence of being in a hospital, being old, uh, aging, having surgery, you know, multiple times, antibiotics, anesthetic, the disease that actually makes you have to have surgery in the first place. It could just literally be opening up the body. Which one of these, you know, looking through all these studies seems to be important for this? Well, the focus is now on inflammation of the body and how that then trickles into the brain and causes problems. The sense is if you have surgery, if somebody cuts into you, that causes a body-wide state of inflammation. Chemicals and immune cells get activated and they have a uh, domino effect on the brain. And that is where a lot of the focus is. If inflammation is really behind this, how would clinicians treat that? There are a lot of anti-inflammatory drugs, uh, things like Vioxx and their relatives, but those have very broad effects on the body. And particularly after a surgery, you may not want to dampen the whole immune response. So the interest now is how can we get more specific to the brain? And this kind of traces back to the original study that got Mitch and I interested in the topic. And that focused on immune cells in the brain called microglia, mm -hmm. which are responsible for inflammatory actions within the brain. In the mouse experiment, if you eliminated the microglia, you could prevent a postoperative cognitive decline right. in those animals. So can we go after microglia specifically? We don't quite have those drugs yet. People are thinking about ways to do it, but I think that will be a, an avenue of inquiry down the road. Right now, we don't have the answer to prevent this post-operative problem, right. um, which is a little scary. One thing I feel like we, had, we haven't gotten to yet is the numbers. How likely is this to happen somewhat, to someone? What's the range anyway? Because so, I'm assuming that it's not, it's not quite nailed down yet. Yeah, I'm probably not going to be able to offer you any comfort mm -hmm. on that uh, 
it really depends on how one defines cognitive dysfunction. And the incidence can range anywhere from 5% to 50% of people who have a surgery. But I wouldn't really trust any of those numbers. One of the things that makes it difficult is ethically, we can't really divide people and say, okay, this group has the surgery and this group doesn't have the surgery, and then trace what happens to them to tease out whether people would be declining normally. And that prevents us from getting a very good incidence at the moment. So under half, but (laughs) beyond that, I can't tell you much more. Okay. Thanks so much, John. My pleasure. John Travis is news managing editor for Science. He plans and edits news coverage of biology and biomedical topics. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.